Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Um, And let me pray for us before we dive into our passage today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And there is a a constant cry in the text we just read of hearing, of listening, of paying attention to, um, of understanding instruction. And so Lord, when we sit in front of your word, we don't stand in front of something um, that uh, uh, has no power, but we stand in front of something which actually binds us by the nature of its authority, but binds us to that which is good and right and holy and ought to be desired. And so uh, we cannot, in any text that we encounter in Scripture, apply anything apart from your grace in our life. So Lord, prevent us as we read this from moralism, thinking that Christianity is simply doing what is right or good, but instead help us understand that all of the moral and ethical obligations of Christianity come after Christ saves sinners by grace. Uh, Help our hearts to not invert that, Lord. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So this past spring, I purchased a pair of wireless headphones after for a long time just buying the cheapest wireless headphones I could. I broke down and bought a solid pair and I loved it. My wife took notice of it and so when her also cheaply purchased headphones broke, she said, I want a good pair. I want a pair like yours. And so um, being a good husband, I waited four weeks to make sure she was sincere about it and then I got online and started looking and I found a pair exactly like my pair for 70% off of what I purchased my pair at. And so I quickly ordered it. It arrived within a couple weeks. Um, But as soon as I opened the package, I began to feel there was something off about this pair of headphones. Something didn't feel right. So what I did is I went and I grabbed uh, my headphone and the boxes that it came in. I began to compare the two. And her box had the exact same branding, the exact same claims on it, but her box was actually a different shape than the box mine came in. And then I took them out and I noticed the little light indicator on hers was a different color than mine. And when you turned it on, the chime it made to power on was a different chime altogether. And then the voice that says pairing was uh, a different, it wasn't Dobby from Harry Potter, which is what that sounded like. Um, But it wasn't the same that mine was. And within the first 10 minutes, her case actually broke and it became very clear to me at that point that I had purchased a counterfeit. Had all the promises of the original at a fraction of the price, but ultimately its quality could not compete cannot provide what was actually promised. And as we're concluding uh, Solomon's prologue today, uh, our sermon this week and our sermon next week, finish the prologue, the first nine chapters, and what Solomon is doing is he is actually taking side by side what is original and what is counterfeit so that we might learn to discern between the two. He's taking the true and good promises and pleasures of God And he's holding up next to it the false pleasures and promise of the world. And just as with Sarah's headphones, I had to take out mine. We had to put them in. I had to listen. I had to experience to see what is true. Solomon wants us to experience something in the concluding parts of his prologue. But here's the benefit of wisdom. Here's why Proverbs is so good for us. Is in order for me to learn the lesson that not everything is what it seems, that cheap doesn't mean good, that you can't just say something and always meet the promise, I actually had to incur the cost of purchasing a counterfeit. But here, and this is the wonder of wisdom literature in the Bible, God by grace is going to get us that same experience of knowledge, of understanding that things aren't always what they seem. But he's gonna do it without us having to experience the pain of it. Instead, Solomon is going to use all of his words in this text. Instead, he's just going to show us this is the pain of the counterfeit. This is how you identify the counterfeit so you might avoid it and you might live and you might learn. You see, multiple times in our passage today, Solomon speaks to the one who he says lacks sense. 
And this isn't simply just an insult. Ultimately, this is written so that you might not be the one who lacks sense. He's assuming that when you learn, when you hear these things, you live differently. You are transferred from the one who lacks sense to the one who is wise. He is giving us knowledge beforehand so we can learn from it. And what we're going to see today in chapters 7 and 8 of Proverbs are four primary points and be grouped together into two main points. First, we're going to see the compelling power of affection. And then secondly, we're going to see three contrasts between Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. So we're going to see the compelling power of affection, and then we're going to see three contrasts between Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. And before we get there, uh, we need to define our terms of what it is we're looking at. So if you've been with us in Proverbs, or if you're just joining, Proverbs is considered part of the Bible's wisdom literature, um, and that describes what its end is. Its end is to make us wise. But the way in which the wisdom literature in the Old Testament was written, was written in poetic form, meaning that Solomon and the other authors who wrote this uh, genre in scripture used words and images to paint a compelling picture to teach the point they want to teach. It uses imagery to, to portray wisdom. And wisdom, if there's a quiz at the end of the book of Proverbs, which there might be, who knows, um, the answer to what is wisdom in scripture, we've been defining as this. Wisdom is seeing the world through God's eyes. Wisdom isn't brilliance. Wisdom is a reliance upon God and his ability to fulfill his promises. Wisdom trusts that if God set forth to save us in Jesus Christ, and he has proven that he is able to do that, then his word is equally as proven to guide and instruct our daily lives for our good. And this commitment to seeing the world through God's eyes, of seeing God as faithful, is personified in Proverbs as a woman. This woman is called Lady Wisdom. She's not a real woman. She stands as a metaphor for the attractive and faithful power of God's winsome wisdom. It is someone who we would want to know. We would want to fall in love with. But secondarily, foolishness in the book of Proverbs is not merely intellectual lacking. The fool isn't the person who doesn't know the quadratic equation. The fool is the person who doesn't see the world through God's eyes, who refuses to see God as the authority, who refuses to see God as faithful. And there are two types of fools, and all of us probably fall into one of those categories at any, any time. One is the person who is unknowingly foolish, who doesn't acknowledge God because they don't know God. That's maybe someone who hasn't heard the gospel, wasn't brought up in the church. But then there are people who are arrogantly foolish, they walk in rebellion to God and say, this is what you say, but this is what I'm going to do. And both of these are bad places to be in. Both can be saved by the work of Jesus, but both are in equal dangers on this path of life that Solomon is painting in the book of Proverbs. And this rebellious or foolish ignorance is also portrayed as a woman. And we, so far in the first six chapters of Proverbs, we've seen her called the forbidden woman, the strange woman, the adulteress. But actually, next week's text, Solomon gives her a name. It says that all of those names are just describing the woman folly. And that's because in contrast to wisdom, which calls us to God's faithfulness, is Lady Folly who calls us away from God's faithfulness. And this is where we begin to put together the basis for our first point today, which is the compelling power of affection. By creating these two personifications of what is really a relationship with God, he's creating a battle for your affection. He's creating a love triangle waging war for the desires of your heart. And because of this, the language he uses that we saw last week and we see this week are sexual in their metaphor. The language is intended to do two things, therefore, in our heart with this, with this language. First, it stands to warn us of the face value of the danger of sexual sin in and of itself. In other words, when we read this about um, adultery, about illicit sexual activity, about lust, we should be warned of the danger of that. We should not look past the metaphor that God is using. But secondly, Solomon is after far more than simply sexual purity. And that's because anything which rejects God as faithful 
is spiritual adultery. It chooses to go away from God's faithfulness as our lover and to choose another. And here's the wonderful thing. Why, is, why are we spending so much time kind of painting this picture of what is happening in this poetic wisdom literature? This is helpful to see because it actually explains our lives. Specifically, it explains why we sin. We sin because our hearts want it. Whether that sin is sexual or whether it's secular or whether it's about wealth or anger, the reason why we act on that sin is because we literally become impassioned for it. We want it. It affects us at the level of our affections. It preys on the desires of our hearts. And what Solomon is doing is he's painting this tension that we all feel in our hearts in a dramatic way, specifically in this text. And this is also really interesting when we think about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because what's hidden behind Solomon's call to wisdom is seeing God's faithfulness ultimately in Jesus Christ. And behind that is this call to be obedient and reliant upon Jesus in all things. Wisdom actually has a path of obedience. And sometimes when we think of what it looks like to obey Jesus in our own lives, we never think of obedience as being impassioned. We never think of obedience as being something that our affections are inflamed to do with great zeal. And sometimes we think the opposite, that it's actually in following Jesus that we minimize our affections and our desires and our emotions. But what Solomon is showing is that in walking in light of Jesus' love for you, the gospel is not the suppression of your affections. Instead, it's the only right place to put our affections. It's the only right expression of them. And so what I want to do to see this battle for affections is I'm going to read for us chapter 7 once more. And as you're listening, this is what I want you to listen for. I want you to listen for three things. One, I want you to listen to how Lady Folly is speaking to your heart. How is she preying on your affections? Secondly, what happens to those who listen to Lady Folly? And then lastly, What is Solomon prescribing to protect you from Lady Folly? So those are three things I just want you to be aware of while we're reading chapter 7. But would you read with me the the 27 verses of chapter 7? says this, My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. So now he kind of slips, the father slips into this anecdotal story, right? For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, a woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, so here is the call of Lady Folly, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vow. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him, and with smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the grave, going down to the chambers of death. And so here's this powerful picture 
that Solomon as a loving father is painting for us as his children. And here he shows us, he shows you how Lady Folly gets a hold of your affections, how she grabs your heart. And Solomon, as the author of this text, and God as the primary author of this text, he, they actually give us the benefit of the doubt in this text. And this helps stress the seriousness of how much we need to pay attention to what Solomon is saying. You see, we might lack sense, he alludes to that. We might be out at the time at night in darkness, and that's not the most prudent time to go out for a stroll. Yet despite all of this, the author is alluding to the fact that the young men in this text, the young men he's observing through his lattice, did not go out looking for sin. They're not out intentionally trying to find this woman. And we notice this in the language. She sneaks up on them. He says it's seen time and time again where those who are out in unwise circumstances are caught off guard and they are sucked in by this woman. It's not that they woke up with some notorious conviction to sin on the front end but it's that in the course of life, they had a surprise attack that preyed on their hearts and they couldn't resist. In fact, did you notice the affectionate and aggressive words this woman used? This is good Bible study here. Just look at the words. The lady meets him, seizes him, kisses him, persuades him, and compels him with what? With this wonderfully attractive message which promises the full sensory experience of food, of comfort, of pleasure, and of boundless love. And isn't this what sin does in our hearts? How many of us have begrudgingly obeyed God? Many of us. None of us begrudgingly sin, do we? We sin because it knows our hearts and it sneaks up on us and we want to do it. Very few of us wake up in the morning and we have this conversation. I love the picture in Luke where the man in Jesus' parable is talking to his soul. And few of us wake up and say, soul, today what can I do to show God that I don't really believe that he can save me and satisfy me in the gospel? We don't do that. And yet... There comes moments in our lives where our hearts are wooed away from him. Instead, we walk through life and we're grabbed by the power of sinful temptation. And if we are one who lacks sense, Solomon says, your affections hear what is being offered and you take the bait and the hook is in your mouth. You end up in her room, but you don't realize that everyone who sees the insides of those walls ends up dead. At once, Solomon says, in verse 22. At once when he hears this message, he is led as an ox to the slaughter, as a stag to the hunter's table, and as a bird in a trap. Sin promises in delight, but it pays only in death. And I don't know about you, but when I read this, this illustration doesn't instill a lot of confidence in me to face the challenges of the day. <laughs> knowing that such a powerful enemy knows exactly the keys to my heart and how to entice me to her. Sin deceives us. It makes us think that it is for us, doesn't it? Yet in Genesis 4, 7, God warns Cain, who's about to sin. He says, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is contrary to you. Sin always presents as a friend but it is always the foe. So how do we live in a world where our enemy doesn't just know where we live, but actually knows what our hearts desire? Is our goal often what is misapplied as obedience to just become these stoic and repressed individuals who show no affection or delight just to be safe? No. Look at actually the opposite, which is presented in verses one through four. This is his prescription to us. My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. You see, to fight the affection of Lady Folly and her ninja attacks... 
we're to actually have a suppress or a surpassing and intimate relationship with God's wisdom. Everything that is offered in the call of Lady Folly's bedroom, we are to find in the right delight of wisdom as an intimate friend. The victory in the battle for the affection of your soul is not through white-knuckle repression. Instead, it is through an intimate rejoicing in God's better love held out for you in his faithfulness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Brian Hedges, in his book, Christ Forming You, has an illustration that I think might be the best illustration of this I've ever seen. And he borrows from two pieces of literature, um, and each of those, it's portraying seafarers and these mythical sirens. Like Lady Folly, these sirens uh, present this wonderful song that sounds attractive and, and entices the heart of the sailors. But as soon as the sailors get to the sirens, they eat their faces off and they all die. So don't go to the sirens. And so there's these two men, they both know the danger of the sirens, and so the first captain, he fills uh, his rower's ears with wax, like any good captain would, and uh, then he asks them, or mimes to them, because the ears are in wax, to chain him to the mast. The second captain goes and finds the most beautiful harpist in all the land and asks her to board his ship. And as the first captain goes on his voyage, he hears the siren call, but his rowers have wax in the ear, and so they do not veer towards her, but instead they make it safely through. However, this captain is tortured and gone mad. Chained to the mast, he hears the call of the siren, and he wants nothing more to go there, but is painfully bound from acting on his desires. But when the second man crossed the waters... He also heard the song. No one's ears are plugged, no one is chained. But as soon as the siren began to sing, he commanded the harpist to play. And they made it through safely to the other side. But they didn't do it tortured by the sirens or bound in their hearts. They did it because what they heard in the harpist was more beautiful than what they heard in the sirens and the affection of their heart compelled them and satisfied them. In the battle you have against sin, I wonder how many of us see the danger of sin, but we still think that in saying no to sin, we are the ones ultimately missing out on joy. I wonder how many of us have actually shortchanged the battle for affection in our hearts by understanding hell is bad, God is real, but man, if I could live like that. And our hearts desire it. Such thinking sets you up for failure when the sneak attack of sin calls for your heart. But what Solomon proposes instead is we learn to hear the surpassing song of beauty and be satisfied by the faithful intimacy of Lady Wisdom. What he wants you to do to these two songs is to hold up the better sound of Lady Wisdom so that we can willingly and actually with desire for obedience say no to what is dangerous and say yes to what truly satisfies. And this is where in chapter 8 we enter what one commentator said, Lady Wisdom's autobiography where we see the beauty of who she is. We see the monologue of Lady Wisdom, which just like my headphones shows the flaws of the counterfeit and just like the harpist shows the surpassing delight of trusting in God. And this is where we get into our second point, the three contrasts between Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. What's displayed in chapter seven and eight is this battle for the affection of your heart but what we're going to see is that only a fool would actually choose to listen to the lady in chapter seven and not the lady in chapter eight. And here we see our first point, if you read with me, verses one through 11 of chapter eight. So it begins with a little preface from the father again. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in the front of town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. So here in verse four, we begin wisdom's call. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. 
O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All of the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to him who finds knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare to her. So here we see our first contrast between these two women. And this is that sin is corrupt, but wisdom is true. And what's central to this first part of her monologue is the value and uh, nature of her words, isn't it? Look back at how she describes her language in verses six through nine. Here, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. And so in the course of what has happened in our church in the last year of uh, purchasing a new building and working with the city on the library and the old building, I've seen a lot of legal documents come my way. And in those documents, I look at them, and then I invite others to look at them to make sure that whatever is in this document is not something that is ultimately going to take advantage of us. That it's not something that we unknowingly will agree to and consume something that hurts us, harms us, or deceives us. Our society is bathed in legal language. I was watching a commercial for a minivan yesterday, and it had on the bottom, do not attempt. I watched the whole thing. They got out of a minivan. There was nothing else that happened. They pulled to a side of a road and got out. And they're warning us, don't do that. Why are we so covered in legal language? It's not because lawyers just need jobs. It's actually because lawyers are employed because the desires of our hearts are often devious. We want to take advantage of others. We want to seek what is good. We want to present as inauthentic so long as it benefits us. And because of that, we have this ecosystem which tries to protect us from deceptive dangers. Sin, Lady Folly, is a deceptive and master schemer. She knows how to veil her actions in ways where you have no idea what it is you're agreeing to. Speaking of uh, the devil in John chapter 8, look at how Jesus speaks of the deceptive power of Satan in chapter 8, verse 44. "You You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. His character is made up of deceit. So too will all of his actions be. Don't we see the deceptive and manipulating power, not only of Satan, but of that personification in Lady Folly here? She comes dressed to us as a prostitute, but she's a wife. She's no prostitute. She comes to us wily of heart, meaning she is so good that you will never know what her intentions are. Another translation says she comes to you guarded of heart. You cannot discern what it is she's trying to do. And while you don't know what she's trying to do, Solomon shows you something else, doesn't he? He shows you the wake of what follows her. There is a mighty throng, he says, of people who just like you, who bought into her pyramid scheme, led by affection but leaving in devastation. But in contrast to the deceitful promise of sin is the truthfulness of God's word in the gospel. 
What God gives us in his word is true and righteous. What God has proved for us in the substitute of Jesus in our place on the cross is what is good for us. And in his word, there is no lie. In fact, think of the promise that this deceitful woman offers in Proverbs chapter seven. And now look at the promise of this true and righteous God in Psalm 37, verses three through six. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Do you hear that affection language? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day. Why is it that we so easily trust in the corrupted promises of sin and doubt the God who says at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because that's really what's up for decision here. Even more than this, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that if God did not spare his only son to save you, how much more will he with Jesus also give us all things? Many of us are met unprepared by the temptation of sin, sexual or otherwise, because while we may trust God with our salvation in Jesus, we do not trust Jesus with our satisfaction. But the Bible makes it clear that to, to be restored to God through Jesus is to be given all of the delight of the Father of which we would gladly throw away every pleasure of the world, not because we found something less, but because we found something of far more value. It is freely offered in the gospel. You see, why do we rightly fight for inerrancy of God's word inside the church if we don't actually believe God's word regarding our goodness when we encounter it in scripture? We have the word of God that those who come to him in faith in Jesus Christ will get the desires of their heart fulfilled by finding the well of God's joy for them in the gospel. Sin is corrupt. Wisdom is true. Secondarily, we see the contrast in verses 12 through 21 of chapter 8. So here's the second part of wisdom's monologue. She says this, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, and pride and arrogance the way of evil. And perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. Just By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. My yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the path of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, filling their treasuries. So here we see the second contrast, and that is this. That sin is faithless, but wisdom is faithful. Sin is faithless and wisdom is faithful. Look back at what Lady Folly says when she grabs us in chapter 7, verse 18. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Guys, that is a sales pitch that will work in any marketing meeting you ever attend. That is powerful. That is persuasive. That is compelling. That is what all of us want. But there's one big problem behind this promise. Look at what comes next in verse 19. For my husband is not at home. What's the problem with her promise of love? She has a husband. What does this tell us? It tells us that though sin offers love, her love is fickle. Even the man she has covenanted to love, she no longer loves. 
She is unfaithful in her core. But this is the danger of sin. And don't we all feel this? When we find sin that preys on our affection, we get tunnel vision like we just encountered a Disney prince. We know it for five seconds and we want to spend the rest of our life with it. And anyone who questions us doesn't understand what we have. You don't understand what I have with this person, with this object, with this sin. It satisfies me like nothing else ever could. But if we're sober-minded, we step back and we consider. And we begin to say, if you're not faithful to your husband, why would you be faithful to me? The wise Christian examines the call of sin and it says, if you haven't satisfied me before, if you haven't faithfully cared for me before, then why should I believe that you will faithfully care for me now? For can't you look back at your own life and see times where you've given in to sin? I certainly can. And never in any of those sins have I said, that was sufficient. That experience is walking with me, reminding me that I'm satisfied every day. It proves faithless. More than that, whatever your sin is, can't you find someone out there in the world who has had the deepest longing of your heart and still has lack? More than that, inside the church, how many of us, when we're about to buy a product or watch a movie, we hop online and look at reviews? But how many of us, when we wrestle with sin in our own hearts, turn to our brothers and sisters in the church when sin is pandering to us and ask them for help. For in this body, in our members, are those who have tasted a myriad of sins, who have been inside this room and can come to us and say, I've been there and it's all a lie. And it doesn't satisfy. God has not called us as Christians to wage the war of affection against sin on our own, but instead he has given us brothers and sisters in Christ to where when we walk through the life of this Christian journey, we encounter those who say we've been there and it isn't faithful. Sin is never faithful except to harm us. But lady wisdom is the basis of all faithfulness. There is nothing more consistent than her. By her, kings reign and princes rule. It is the tried moral fabric of society. Wisdom consistently causes justice to flourish, counsel, strength, and peace to increase. More than that, look at the astounding promises of wisdom in verses 17 through 21. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting inheritance. That's, so inher he's using this temporal language. It goes forever. Using this inheritance to those who love me, filling their treasuries. You see, why is it that we as Christians have the distinct privilege of running to Jesus over and over and over again? Well, we see it in verse 17. Because if you come to Jesus in faith, he will not turn you away. He loves those who love him and is consistent to do so in the miracle of redemption. Sin will leave you empty the moment you leave her presence but Christ, even when the prodigal son returns, faithfully loves those who love him and seek after him. It is Christ and Christ alone who promises an inheritance of security which the economy of life cannot destroy. If you've been left empty by the promise of sin, it is by grace that God calls you back into fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. And you realize that Christ in this wonderful tension that we cannot understand, for those who truly are saved by him, Christ will not let you go. He will love you and keep you. For Paul says in 1 Timothy, he cannot deny himself. 
Christ is faithful to satisfy us. Sin will quickly leave you broken as soon as it's convenient. But lastly, read with me Proverbs 22, or 8, 22 through 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the water might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always and rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So here we see our last contrast today. That sin is fleeting, but wisdom is forever. And I love what Solomon does here because when we see it, it is so obvious. Do you remember all of the things that Lady Folly offered in this text? Everything she prayed upon. She offers, I love it. When she says, I have offered my sacrifices today, what she's saying is I went to the temple, I offered the sacrifice and the priest would only take 10% of the cow or the goat that she offered and the rest goes home. What she's saying, she's saying, I've got famous Dave's. I've got barbecue. I've got soft linens and smelly things. I've got sexual pleasure in a warm bed. I've got the appearance of wealth. What is there to not want in this call? It is the ecosystem of pleasure. But look at what else she says in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 7. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. So what is the ridiculous nature of this call? It is not only that Solomon says that this little romp will certainly cost you your life, but it's also because there's an expiration date. Her husband will come back. The experience will end. The food will run out. The bed will be filled with another. Yet don't we often think the pleasures of sin will last us as long as we want? That it will always be there to answer our call, but illicit goods never last. It's for only a moment. And whatever sin you enjoy, someday it will meet its end. Perhaps like the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke, it's when the money runs out. Perhaps like Jonah, it's when that future you think is so bright is finally swallowed up in front of you. Perhaps like the men in this text, it's when the husband returns. But more so and universally, there will be a day when Christ the King comes back and your sin will fail to satisfy and certainly fail to save. The wages of sin is death. And whatever pleasure it might provide in the moment is just that. Its time will come and all will be exposed. But the pleasures of wisdom is joy forevermore. This wisdom was present with God before creation started. It is the basis of what calls your hearts and the basis of where the waves of the ocean crash. It is the fabric that God has woven into eternity past. It is the fabric of what will live in eternity future. And more than that, look at this astounding truth about God's wisdom in verses 30 and 31. 
Then I was beside him, that is wisdom being beside God, like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Wisdom. What Solomon is calling you to in the book of Proverbs delights God himself. How arrogant do we need to be to think that we have a more refined palate for delight than the God who created delight? How wonderful is wisdom? Wonderful enough for the God of the universe to delight in it. And more than that, this wisdom which delights God has chosen in verse 31 to delight in you. Its delight is in the children of man. This is absolutely staggering to think about. This wisdom, this woman, this wonderful personification of God's faithfulness lavished on you in his covenant wants you. Lady Folly wants you. But she wants you dead. This lady wants you and delights in you. But where do you see her delight in this text? Her delight for you in this text is in her call given to you right now. In her affectionate appeal to call you off of the street, to get you off of the corner, and to get you into her home. Look at her closing appeal in verses 32 through 36. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself and all who hate me love death. How do we experience the delight of God's affection? How do we experience God's delight in the affection of wisdom? We simply come. We listen to her call. We find it and we find life. Being called to whatever God is calling us to in Proverbs 7 and 8 is not the call to come labor for another boss, but the call to come to another love. And doesn't this language so clearly point to what Christ fulfills where Paul says Christ is the wisdom of God? Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. Jesus said to them again, so truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Isn't this good news? That here, God is not calling our affection. He is not calling our culinary interest to be satisfied by a 99 cent beef and bean burrito from Taco Bell. He is calling us to set our affection on Jesus, our loving, life-giving shepherd who has come to show us his love by dying as love in our place. He has come to satisfy us by being God incarnate, dwelling in our hearts through faith, restoring us to God, giving us favor with the Lord. For those who have tasted death in the room of Lady Folly, the lover of God in Lady Wisdom has promised to take that death for you in Jesus Christ. He has promised to redeem you from all of the lies you've believed about God being insufficient by becoming the sufficient sacrifice for you. For those who want to prepare themselves to run from the call of sin, consider the call to Christ. 
You see, there'll be times in your life where you do not know what to do and you will not know what obedience looks like. But here in the book of Proverbs, it doesn't so much as tell you what to do, but it tells you to whom you should go. You go to wisdom. You go to Jesus. For where does wisdom stand? On the path of righteousness. On the road of justice. If you get to Jesus, you get affection, you get grace, you get forgiveness, but you also get obedience. You also get joyful heart change to show you the way that doesn't lead you to the grave, but leads you to joy. So today, we've seen the two calls. We've seen the two women And in the wonderful reversal of all our hearts naturally think the way to get it is to come, is to hear, is to take it. If you've never taken Jesus today, man, what a privilege the gospel gives you. There's change, there's a different path, there's a different way, but first you get to come to a different lover who pays for your penalty and brings you back to grace with the Father. And for those of us who are there, we have the privilege of walking with this Jesus for the rest of our lives, of experiencing the truthfulness of his promise, the faithfulness of his love, and the enduring promise of his grace. So let us turn, repent, and cherish this Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, when I read this, it is overwhelming how good you are. Man, it is so easy to see in the poetry and the common sense face value that Solomon uses, only a fool would choose the woman of Proverbs 7. And yet our hearts are foolish. Our hearts, as John Calvin says, are an idol factory. Our hearts are deceived. But Christ has come to die for the deceived heart. Christ has come to love those who didn't love him. And Christ is faithful to change the affections of our hearts finally and fully one day. But in progresses of grace today. So Lord, we thank you for the surpassing beauty of him who loves us in Jesus. We pray that as you capture our affections, you capture the whole of our lives. We pray this church is different in what we do precisely because of who we love. We pray this in your name, amen.